0: Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. All right. As I said, my name is Ken Cantrell. Uh, If you've been away for a while or if you're just new to Oak City Church, our lead pastor, primary preacher, Jeff Ramsey, is on sabbatical. And so I'm one of the people helping to step in and fill the gap while he is out. If there's anything that I can do, is there anything I need to be doing, Dan? Okay. If there's anything that I can do or the staff can do or the elders can do to help you, please feel free to reach out to us. We're in a series in the New Testament in the book of Acts. So as a reminder, or if you're just new to the series, Acts is the story of how God sovereignly created and grew his church after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every story and every human actor in the book of Acts, whether that's Stephen from two weeks ago or Philip and Peter from last week or Paul and Ananias from this week, all of them are just players in God's bigger story. This week we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 9, which describes the conversion of the apostle Paul, and it's going to start what's going to kind of feel like part two of the book of Acts because pretty much all the rest of the stories that we're going to go through in the book are going to focus on Paul as the primary human character. So that, that reminder is really important because it doesn't matter how important Paul feels or how often he appears. Paul's story is just a smaller part of God's story of how he grew and created his church. what we're going to do today is we're going to start by reading a pretty big segment of Acts chapter 9. It's going to take like two minutes so bear with me but this is a really good story and I think it's worth hearing from beginning to end. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word and we've developed a routine here where after I read the scripture I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord and your response is thanks be to God. Meanwhile Saul, so slight detour, Saul, Paul, same person. Prior to his belief in Jesus, he was named Saul. Afterwards, he was named Paul. And I'm going to try really, really hard to only call him Paul today, because otherwise he gets very, very confusing about who you're talking to. I may mess up, but Saul and Paul, same person. Meanwhile, Saul, unless I'm reading Scripture, then he's Saul. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing out murder or threats to murder the Lord's disciples, went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, that's what Christianity was originally called, it was the way, either men or women, he could bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he was going along, approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So he said... Who are you, Lord? (laughs) And he replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But stand up and enter the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now, the men who were traveling with him stood there speechless because they heard the voice, but they saw no one. So Saul got up from the ground, but although his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Leading him by the hand, his companions brought him into Damascus. For three days he could not see. And he neither ate nor drank anything. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he replied, Here I am, Lord. Then the Lord told him, Get up and go to the street called Straight. And at Judas's house, look for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. Come in and place his hands on him so he may see again. But Ananias replied, Lord, I have heard from many people about this man and how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to imprison all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, because this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the people of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, placed his hands on Saul and said, "'Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit.' Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he could see again. He got up, he was baptized, and after taking some food, his strength returned. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, this man is the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed and were saying, is this not the man who in Jerusalem was ravaging those who call on this name and who had come here to bring them as prisoners to the chief priests? But Saul became more and more capable and was causing consternation among the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You. And you may sit down. Uh, this is, I think this is such a great story. Um, and there are so many sermons that I could preach out of it, uh, many of which those of you who are doing the Bible reading plan commented on. And a lot of those centered on Ananias. And Ananias is faithfulness, his obedience, his courage. Uh, Those are great. That's not what I'm going to preach on today. Um, What I want to do today is put our focus squarely on Paul's conversion and what that can tell us about God, ourselves, and those around us. To do that, here's how I'm going to structure the rest of the sermon. I'm going to give you some context for a while to really understand what's happening here. Then we're going to look deeper at Paul and what he thought about his conversion. And then I'm going to try to call you into a level of zealousness to match Paul's own. So, context after his conversion something to know is that paul is considered to be the single most influential voice in all of christianity except for jesus so if you're not very familiar with the christian bible the books of what we call the old testament were written before jesus the books of the new testament were written after jesus and most of the new testament are actually letters they're letters that somebody wrote either to a person or to a church Paul wrote almost all those letters. In fact, he wrote 13 out of 27 of the books in the New Testament. It's almost impossible to underestimate the effect that Paul has had on our understanding of Jesus and the faith. So, Paul's Christi- or conversion to Christianity is kind of a big deal. So, where do we start? How about here? Paul did not start out as a hero of the faith. Prior to his story in Acts chapter 9, he was a clear enemy of the church. He was also really well-educated, and as a Roman citizen, which made travel for him safer, it gave him special perks while he traveled, it helped him have access to the higher levels of society, he was very well positioned to do harm to the church. So We were first introduced to Paul back in chapter 7, when the first Christian martyr, a man named Stephen, was stoned to death, and we're told that those who stoned Stephen laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. John preached on this two weeks ago. And then immediately in the next chapter, we're told, and Saul completely agreed with killing him. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were forced to scatter throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So Weston preached upon this passage a bit last week. We're also told... In Scripture, some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul was trying to destroy the church. Entering one house after another, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So Paul writes about this time in a couple different places in Scripture. And so a little bit later in the book of Acts, he's thinking back on it, and this is what he says about it. He says, that's what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison by the authority I received from the chief priest... I also cast my vote against them when they were sentenced to death. I punished them often in all of the synagogues. I tried to force them to blaspheme because I was so furiously enraged at them. I went to persecute them even in foreign cities. So we don't know what Paul looks like. In my mind, I think of the evil Nazi guy from Indiana Jones whose face melted, got the hat and the trench coat and stuff. Um, But you can think of him like the SS coming to pull Jews out of their homes in Nazi Germany. Or think of him as the secret service in communist Russia coming in the night to take somebody away and disappear them. Or maybe just think of him as the boogeyman. Because I wouldn't be at all surprised to find out that in the early church, people would use Paul to scare their children. You all be good, eat your food, or Paul is going to come and get you. I think in the eyes of many believers at the time, he was a fanatic. But whatever you call him, he was a clear enemy of the church and even more of an enemy than other people in leadership. His own mentor and tutor, Gamaliel, earlier in the book of Acts, had basically said, listen, let these people go. Other movements have come. Other movements have gone. If it's of God, it will succeed. If it's not, it's going to fail. But not Paul. He was going to track them down and put an end to all of them. And honestly, it's not exactly why. There's nothing in Scripture that clearly tells us why that's so. My own belief is that this was coming primarily from a sense of defending God. So two weeks ago, John was preaching uh, and, and a lot of what he was talking about was that for the people in Jewish authority and power, that a lot of their anger towards Christianity was about the loss of that power and authority. I think for Paul, just based on the best of his, the rest of his writings, it was less about that. I think he knew the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, which says, hear, O Israel, our, the Lord, <laughs> your God, the Lord, is one. And so I think he was saying, listen, we are surrounded by cultures that say there's more than one God. We have one God. This is who we are. And these people of the way are declaring Jesus as God. I don't know who they are, what this means, but I'll tell you what, it does not mean that they're right. And there's a mystery in that, because that's exactly what we believe, is that Jesus Christ is God made flesh. But he looked at that and said, they're heretics. They are drawing people away from the worship of the one true God, and we've got to stomp this out. So I think he was trying to just stomp heresy, and he was all in. He was zealous for this. He has pushed them out of Jerusalem, and he is now hunting them down to put an end to that cult that he sees. So that brings us to part two, the conversion of Paul and our passage today. He is on his way out of Jerusalem into Damascus to hunt down believers and get rid of them. And Jesus appears to him and changes everything. Coming face-to-face with Jesus changes everything. I think at least two things happened to him there. One, Paul understood that something was wrong with him. And he totally got the idea that there was nothing that he could do about that on his own. Paul thinks that he is fully in the right, doing the will of God. And then Jesus appears to him. He falls to his feet. He gets blinded. I think he's probably knocked down in part of that. I think he figured out real quick, Houston, there's a problem. And that problem is not Jesus. That problem is me. There was something wrong with him in the path his life was on. I think think about that for just a minute, because I think that's something our culture fights with a lot. We want to think, "I'm okay, you're okay, we're all OK. It's all, it's all good." But I don't think this idea that there's something wrong with us is really that hard of a thing to get. Go to the bookstore. There are still Barnes and Nobles. Go to the bookstore, look in the self-help aisle. Why are there so many books in the self-help aisle? Because we know that there is something wrong with us. We know we are not who we are supposed to be. That's not a cultural thing, that's a human thing. We know we aren't right. We just disagree about what the problem is and we disagree about what to do about it. For followers of Jesus Christ, we recognize that the deepest core of what's wrong with us is that we lack righteousness. We are not in a right standing with the God who created us. Now for Paul, what's crazy is that according to everything he knew and what the non-Christ believing Jews of the time would say, if anybody should have been right with God, it would have been Paul. He came from the right family, he went to the right schools, he was taught in the right church, synagogue, he read the right books, he did the right things, and he was incredibly sincere about all of it. Folks called him a fanatic, fine, like bring it on. I bet Paul would have embraced that label. But somewhere between being struck blind and having his sight restored, Paul came to believe that everything in his life, everything in our lives was meant to be turned to Jesus. And that without Jesus, he was spiritually dead, not sick, not misdirected, not just like not on the right path, not immature, dead. It took Paul a while to kind of put all this into words, but over the course of the ministry, he wrote about this a lot, right? He wrote most of the books of the New Testament. So looking back on this, he described this aha moment in his letter to the church at Philippi. And here's what he did. He starts by showing why he should have been in a perfectly right standing with God. And he says this. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day from the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I lived according to the law as a Pharisee. In my zeal for God, I persecuted the church. According to the righteousness stipulated in the law, I was blameless. And I know that list probably does not connect with you. But in his culture, that was a serious A plus list. And here's what he says about those credentials. He says, if they get in the way of knowing and following Jesus, they're excrement, their poop, that's, that's actually the word he uses. You can translate it however you want, excrement or dung or poop or feast. That's the word he uses. Here, actually, this is how he says it in his own words. But these assets I have come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. More than that, I now regard liabilities all things as liabilities compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things indeed I regard them as dung feces excrement put your own word in that I may gain Christ and be found in him not because I have my own righteousness derived from the law but because I have the righteousness that comes by way of Christ's faithfulness a righteousness from God that is, in fact, based on Christ's faithfulness. So here's what he's doing. Paul is saying that there's a list of stuff that's not bad in and of itself. But when we try to substitute those things in place of Jesus as a way of making ourselves right before God, they bring death, not life. And if you look at just the list by itself, like I said, it doesn't connect really well. But if you look at that list as a list of categories, and he's just giving you an example from each one, that list works perfectly for us. So what I want to do is look through the list for just a minute and look at what did they mean for Paul? What do they mean for us? So if you're not a follower of Jesus, um, as you hear this list, maybe think, do do I connect with any of these? Do any of these trigger something that maybe I would want to talk more about to another believer or to a believer? If you are a follower of Jesus, do you find yourself returning to any of these as a way of declaring yourself righteous? Maybe do you see your friends or family or neighbors in any of these? Can it help you better help share the gospel with them? So let's go through that list one by one. Circumcised on the eighth day. Circumcision was created by God to be a sign of the covenant between God and his people. So It was meant to draw them back day after day, generation after generation, and remind them that God had had mercy on them, that God would lead them, that God had chosen them. But it had become a lot more than that. It had become kind of a sign of, of honor. It's a way of saying, I'm in, you're out. So Paul's claim here, he's, he's saying... If you're part of that crowd that puts a lot of stock in circumcision i'm in i'm perfect the word he actually uses is he says i'm an eight dayer like oh yeah there have been people that have been circumcised my parents did it exactly like they were supposed to i'm in so we don't care about circumcision really today i think but if you you could relate this to other signs and rituals that people use to feel good about their own standing with god so if you've ever thought I'm a Christian because I was baptized as an infant, or I was dedicated in the church, or I'm a member of a church, or I went to a Christian school, or I went to a Christian camp, and yet your desire is not to know and follow Jesus, then he's saying those things are like excrement. They're worse than worthless. He's saying that there's no right no ritual, no ceremony that counts as gain and can truly make you well or right with God. The second thing he says is he's of the people of Israel. So what he's saying here is I'm not just part of the covenant because I've been circumcised. I can actually trace my lineage all the way back to Abraham. So the covenant that God had made was between Abraham, you, and your offspring. And he's saying, that's me. So what does this one mean for us? This is a complete, it is a direct counter to any idea that because you're whiter than somebody else or you're darker than somebody else, that you are more or less acceptable to God. It's a counter to the idea that you're saved just because of where you came from. So I I work with people that have come to the United States from other countries, and they said that before they came to the U.S., they thought that everybody in the U.S. was a Christian because we live in the U.S., And they were like, well, I got here, and I was like, that's not right. But I think there's people who live in the U.S. who think, because I live here or because I live in this neighborhood or because I live next to a church, I'm a Christian. He's saying it doesn't matter where you're from, and it doesn't matter what color you are or who you're descended from, none of these make you right with God. Now the last one is this little section of, he says he's of the tribe of Benjamin. Here's the really short version of that one. The tribe of Benjamin has a really special place in Jewish history. So this is kind of a way of saying, I'm the part of the elite, I'm part of the cream of the crop. For us. So, Oak City, Vizio Day, uh, we've, we've had a lot of preacher kids in the church over the course of time. So I think he's talking to them. But he, he's also talking that to anybody who might have a parent or a spouse who's really active in church. He's saying, do you have, like, a pastor or a music minister or a staff or an elder or a home group leader that you're connected to do you think that somehow because you're connected to them you're a christian and you're right with god this is no it's not the way it works we still have folks here like me actually that were part of the the group that launched vizio day which then became oak city church and i attended other churches that had founding members who'd been there for you know long time he says do you believe that God somehow loves you more because you founded the church or your parents did and he tells us if you think these things make you righteous you're wrong they're worse than worthless and then he gets to this last section a Hebrew of Hebrews now honestly that might just be him saying I'm a man's man I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews It might also be a way of saying, I speak Hebrew, most of you don't. I care about this a lot more than you do. Uh, It's not entirely clear what he meant there. I think, though, that we can use that one to wrap up that section by saying, if you so identify with the church, but you don't identify with the idea of Jesus, you've missed that idea of identifying yourself with Jesus, he's talking about you or me. Now, those things, Those three things, or four, depending on how you count them, those are things he had no control over because those are things about who he was descended from or things that his parents did. But then he gives us a list of three things and says, these are things that are about me, choices I've made. The first two of that was, he says, as to the law, a Pharisee, and as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So Paul lived according to a very strict code of behavior that honored the traditions of his spiritual fathers. So I think if you've been in church a while, you hear Pharisee and you think, oh, Pharisees, they're bad. Um, Pharisees were not bad because of what they taught. Pharisees were bad because they were hypocrites. (laughs) Jesus' teachings more align with the teachings of the Pharisees than any of the other Jewish groups. And he's saying, listen, I have a very rigid, very well-defined set of rules on my behavior, more than you do. And I've got a measuring stick that can tell me how I'm doing and I'm doing pretty good. And as he's defending himself to the Judaizers, there's this part in there that says, listen, you have rules, I've got more. Like, you can't judge me. I'm in a good place. That zealousness part, we have already talked about that. If sincerity was all it took, Paul is in. He is alive and he is healthy. If throwing yourself into work is all it takes to be a healthy person, to be alive spiritually, then Paul's there. You should be as righteous as you can get. So look at those two together for us. What do they mean, together? Well, What they do is they're talking about having and holding to a moral code and doing so with sincerity and fervor. And That's important because I think that's where the United States lives most of the time. I think this is where we put our hope. We think it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere about it. There needs to be some code, we think, some code that governs our behavior. We can't really agree on what that thing is, but we all kind of seem to agree it's really important that you're sincere about that code. Like, look at some of the codes, though, that people adopt for themselves. Maybe the Ten Commandments is one, although that doesn't seem to be one people pick up on as much. That's an interesting one because most people don't even know what they are. They're like, do not steal, not lie. Do, I don't know what the rest of them are. People just get lost, right? Um, so they reduce that, that rule on their behavior to something simpler, like, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That one gets messy, so maybe they, they simplify it even more and say that maybe their guide of behavior is do no harm, or try your best. Think about do no harm as a code. <laughs> that is a crazy hard code. Like, do no harm has huge ecological implications, right? If this is your code, it's saying that every single thing that you choose to consume, you understand where it came from, how it was produced, how it traveled to you, how it's going to be disposed of, like huge cost that way. It's saying that in every single interaction that you have, you know that the person that you have interacted with has left at least as good, if not better, than they were when they came in that you had no physical body interactions, you know, body language, you had no voice interactions that hurt them in any way. It's saying that you govern your thoughts in such a way that you don't cause any self-harm intellectually, spiritually, or morally, that you do no harm. I don't think anybody lives that code well. Or try your best. Maybe try your best as there is a code that people would pick up. That one's just as bad. Is there anybody who can say that you try your best from beginning to end, from the moment you get up to the moment you lie down, that you have never slacked off? You have never let go. You've never thought to yourself, I'll just do a little better next time. I think if we're honest, it doesn't matter what our list is, what our code is, we don't hold to any of them. Remember, we know we're broken. We hold to these codes so poorly that I don't think they should ever be telling us we're okay. The only way that we can hold to a code is to make it so incredibly meaningless. (laughs) Like I'm going to try my best except when I don't and it's not easy and I don't care that much and I thought of something better that I could do. Like maybe you could hold to that code, right? Our code should be breaking us down and teaching us that if we're ever going to be the people we are meant to be, that we're going to need somebody outside ourselves to do it because it's not us. And then he, he rolls this up, his last one, he says, as to righteousness above er, under the law, blameless. So here he's not saying he has no sin. He's saying, I have a code. And what my code does is it guides my external behavior. And if you look at me, the people who know me best, they can't say that I'm violating my code. If you take this one and apply it to us, think of the people who know you best. Can they say you don't violate your code ever? And then think about how God might judge that knowing what's in your heart and not just what you do. So how does Paul take his credentials and call them excrement because they didn't drive him to Jesus. Instead, what he saw is that I have these things, who I am, where I come from, what I do, how hard I've tried, and I have been substituting those for Jesus, and I put my trust in them instead. When Jesus appeared to him, he realized he had been spiritually dead and now in faith was alive. And he realized that there was so much more in store for him than he had ever imagined. Here's how he says this in another language, or another letter. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in offenses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. For by grace, you are saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his creative work, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so we can do them. This idea for Paul, that everything we are is supposed to be founded in Jesus, became that central guiding point of his life from that moment forward. He saw not just like, what i had been thinking, but he thought, I had a plan for my life, and what I see now is it was so misdirected, and I have so much hope, there's so much more for me to do. And I think we're all supposed to be just like Paul in that. Which brings me to the last point, the call. So Paul never says that zealousness in his life, as Saul, was bad in and of itself. What he said was, it was misdirected. All my energy that I poured into that was bad because it led me away from Jesus. Earlier in the sermon, I made a point of calling out Paul as a fanatic or that people might see him as a fanatic when he was persecuting the church. I think sometimes we, the followers of Jesus, are afraid to live out our faith with zeal because we're afraid that people are going to see us as fanatics. Or maybe we've seen other people that talk a lot of Jesus talk and they're just mean. And we're like, I don't want to be like those people. And I knew when I started the sermon that part of what I wanted to do is I wanted to to talk about like this transformation that happened in Paul. And then somehow say we need to have the energy of Paul as he lived out that new person that he was. But I didn't know how to say it. I mean, I just said it, but I wanted to say it better, right? Um, And then I found this quote from Tim Keller that I think is just amazing, that I wanted to use to sort of wrap things up. And here's what he says. He says, what if, he's comparing it to something else, but he says, what if, however, the essence of Christianity is salvation by grace? Salvation not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done for us. Belief that you are accepted by God by sheer grace is profoundly humbling. The people who are fanatics then are not so because they are too committed to the gospel but because they're not committed to it enough think of people that you think of as fanatical they're overbearing self-righteous opinionated insensitive and harsh why it's not because they're too christian but because they're not christian enough they're fanatically zealous and courageous but not fanatically humble sensitive, loving, empathetic, forgiving, or understanding as Christ was. What strikes us as overly fanatical is actually a failure to be fully committed to Christ and his gospel. When Paul got that, when he saw that Jesus is the meaning behind all of life, he committed himself to Jesus and the gospel, and he did it with all of the zeal of his life as Saul, but pointed in the right direction. I think that's, like, we're supposed to be like Paul. Now you might think, way back to the beginning of the sermon, he said he had a bunch of sermons on Ananias. I really wish he had preached on Ananias and not Paul because I could be an Ananias. I don't think I can be a Paul. Well, here's the good news. Jesus isn't calling everybody to live out what it means to know and follow him the same way. Some of us may be called to suffer as much as he suffered, and to be missionaries, and to give up everything. But some of us may be called to be more quiet in an obscure service like Ananias was. But all of us are called to live in Christ. Not just sit, but to live in Christ, and like Paul, to be fully committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. My prayer for all of us is that Jesus would continue to remove the scales from our eyes, allow us to see him teach us to rely on him and allow us to live out those good works that he has prepared beforehand for all of us to do not as substitutes for him but because of him would you pray with me and the band can come up here when i'm done praying (laughs) father god you are a great and an amazing god And I thank you for the story of Paul. I thank you for showing us that you change lives, that coming into contact with you and seeing you changes everything. I pray, God, that you open our eyes to allow us to see what we put in our lives in place of you. Teach us that we need you, and teach us that you're the answer. And help us, God, to live that out, to do the good works that you have prepared for us in your name to bring you honor and glory. I pray this in the name of Jesus. So um, we're going to, to continue to worship through communion. We do communion and practice communion in remembrance of him, his life, his death, and his resurrection. We take bread in remembrance of his body that was broken for us, and we take our drink as a remembrance of His blood shed for us, here at Oak City Church, communion is open to everybody who loves and worships Jesus Christ, declares Him as God made flesh. If that's you, I encourage you to join us up in worship, join us in worshiping through communion. Uh, once we're down front.